We're starting a new series this morning. Uh, we're starting David. We went through Samuel, then we did Saul. Saul was rejected last week. Um, as if you were here last week, you saw the rejection to take place. And then we're moving on uh, to looking, God is moving on as we're walking through the book, looking for a king that's after his own heart. Saul was not a person who was after God's own heart. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. He's looking for somebody who is after his own heart. Well, what does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about today. Because if you look at David, the, the stamp that's on him is this is a man who is after my own heart. And we see not only Samuel and God having the conversation before you pick the king, make sure that's who you pick, but you see Paul in the New Testament look back at the life of King David and calls him twice. This is a man after his own heart. And so this uh, sermon and the next week as well is just going to be foundation of what it looks like a man after his own heart. Uh, the reason why we're going to talk about it two weeks is because uh, I split my sermon in half. <laughs> I did, you know, I had to cut it in half because it was just too long. We would have been here for a lot longer. I should have split it three times. Um, I won't go too far over, but uh, uh, we're split it in half. So we're going to look at what's, um, uh, uh, what is the heart and then we're going to ask the question, what does a man look like? What does a person look like after God's own heart? And then next week we're going to say, well, how do you become a man after God's own heart? And how did David become a man after God's own heart? What, did, what was inside of him to, to do that where God recognizes a person and said, this is a person after my own heart. So let's just start off in, uh, we'll start off in chapter 13 because this was mentioned before Saul was rejected. Because in chapter 13, we see Saul go a direction that was not God's direction. We saw, we saw Saul choose, make a decision that I am going to do God's work in saving his people instead of doing what God asked me to do to save his people. That's a belief that uh, God just does not take too kindly to. And then we see Saul being motivated to do his mind, his will, through the next three chapters. And as a result of doing his mind, his will, his heart, we get to evaluate God's reaction to him. And at the end, his reaction was rejection. Chapter 13, 14 says, But now your kingdom shall not endure. He's talking to Saul. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have kept, not kept what the Lord has commanded to you. And then after his rejection, we get chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being the king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to the sacrifice for the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate for you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? The reason why they're trembling is because whenever a prophet shows up, uh, they're either coming for one or two reasons. The first reason is I come to judgment. You have not listened to God, therefore this is going to happen. Or you come in peace. I have a good message for you. So they were trembling before Samuel showed up. 
We showed up. Samuel said, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse, his son, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord has anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For God, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What does Samuel see in verse 6? Eliab, here's the firstborn. This is the one you're looking for, God. And God has a reaction to Samuel. He says, do not look at the parents. Do not look at the outside. Look at something else. And the reason why I want you to look at something else is because I look at something else. Don't look at the appearance because I've rejected him in regards to his appearance. Look for somebody after my own heart. Because that is what the Lord looks at. The heart, not the appearance. Before I was a... um, pastor. In fact, I was, I was married for about 12 years before I became a pastor. But when I got married, I started dating my wife. I was, a, I was actually a, a logger. I uh, did a helicopter logging. I was underneath the, the crane. They call it a crane, the helicopter a crane. And I'd sit there and I'd, I'd hook all the logs onto the helicopter. Then I'd run like crazy in the helicopter, take it to the landing, and the helicopter would consistently come back to me all day. And it, was, it was a really, really intense job. And I, I worked with uh, some really, really rough people. Um, they are all, they're all on drugs and they're all kind of a mess. It was just a, it was just kind of a, a rough environment. And, uh, during that time, um, I was cheap. And what I mean by cheap is that, uh, we went wherever the job was at and we lived wherever the job was at. So, of course, logging, the jobs are going to be in the hills. So we lived in the hills, but a lot of people would pull, you know, nice fifth wheels and generators or they would park down and, um, in the KOAs and then they would drive up to the landing where it is. But for me, being cheap, I wasn't going to pay for a KOA. Um, and I also wasn't going to pay for a nice big fifth wheel or a nice, nice trailer. So I bought a 15 foot trailer that was not self-contained. That means it has no toilets and it has no showers at all. And you might think, well, how do you shower? Well, you just park by a creek and then you, you shower, you know, after work. But of course you don't have to shower every day. I mean, you're logging. I mean, you can go a week easily without showering. It's not that big of a deal or shaving or anything else. And you just go and you just sweat the stink out of you. That's what, that's what I thought that it was supposed to, it was supposed to work. And so, uh, um, I did that, uh, for about two years and my wife fell in love with me during that time. <laughs> she, she says, you fooled me. I did not marry a pastor. I married a logger. Then look what you turned into, you know, um, um, but during that time, uh, we were dating, and I was on the road, and, and she was back here in Salem, so we communicated a lot as a long-distance relationship. Um, during that time we were dating, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to propose to my, my wife. And I wanted to do it right, uh, so what I did is I asked her parents, you know, do you mind if I marry your daughter? And they said yes, so I went and I purchased a ring at Harry Ritchie's down here in Albany at the Heritage Mall. And after I saw the ring, I said, do you know what else I should do? Is I should go to... Um, her grandparents' house over at the Mennonite village, and I will ask their permission as well. So I went over to the grandparents' house and said, yeah, welcome in. And I walked, I walked in and, and, uh, and we, you know, had a relationship. They knew me quite, you know, quite, quite a bit. I mean, I've known them for about two years, three years during this time. And, uh, as I was talking to him, I says, I got some good news. And, uh, and he goes, Oh, what's that? 
I pulled out a ring. I said, can I have your granddaughter in marriage? That was not good news to them. (laughs) In fact, I thought they were going to go into a cardiac arrest. Now, now these these grandparents are very, very, very conservative. I mean, they're they're sweet. I've never heard of anything negative come out of their mouth or as sweet as possibly could be. But when they saw that ring, they weren't sweet to me. In fact, they said, absolutely no way. And they were shaken when they were saying it as well. No, no, no. And what you're going to do is you're going to steal her after we said no. And you're going to take her to your mountain area and we will never see her again ever 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 it's like no 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 i'm not i'm not like that they were looking at my outside appearance and it was not attractive i wanted to say just maybe look at the corners of my heart but nobody looks at the corners of your heart because the outside appearance is what you see The outside appearance is what you see. We don't look at the heart. But according to this passage, it says, God looks at the heart and not the outside appearance. He looks at the heart and not the outside appearance. What we really wanted to say is, God, we want you to look at our behavior Not our heart. And the reason why I wanted to look at our behavior is because if we can look at our behavior, then we can kind of manage ourselves. We can kind of see what we're doing and how we're doing. I mean, I'll tell you that, you know, Jesus Christ is is perfect. And him being perfect, coming to earth and living a perfect life, you don't want to measure yourself up to him. Because he's perfect. So who do you want to measure yourself up to? Go to church. <laughs> you go to church. And when you come to church, you can look around and say, okay, I'm going to measure up to other, to other people. We want to watch and observe behavior so we can feel good about other people. In fact, you know, churches are, you know, kind of uh, condemned as being a, a place of gossip. Why would churches be a, a place of gossip? Is because God looks at our behavior. And if God looks at our, I mean, that's what we think. If God looks at our behavior, I've got to make myself feel okay about myself. And the best way to make yourself feel okay about yourself is gossip about the next person. Because as long as I'm gossiping about the next person, then, oh, I should be in halfway decent standing with God. The greatest downfall, I'd say, of even in the American church is that Christianity, the entire obsession, the entire focus, the entire drive is, is behavior. But what happens is if you focus on behavior, you miss all the aspects of what God is looking for, of what God is wanting to do with you. You miss all the aspects and the bones of what Scripture has to offer you. Behavior is just a small piece of the puzzle. There's other pieces of the puzzle. What about your emotions? What about your have peace, have rest, have joy. Is that behavior? No, that's, that's, that's emotions. What about your thoughts? I mean, if you start thinking about, you know, behavior is all, God is looking at all my behavior, we can at least make an impression on God as long as he doesn't get to the thoughts. Because once he gets to the thoughts, I'm not going to make an impression on God anymore because our thoughts are going. So we can kind of neglect the thoughts. You can kind of neglect the emotions. What about the desires? What about... The loves. See, when God looks at somebody, he says he looks not at the behavior, even though he wanted it to be the behavior. 
he looks at the heart. And the word heart is used over a thousand times all the way through Scripture. Over a thousand times all the way through Scripture. Why? Because God's not looking at the outside appearance. He's looking at the heart. So we'll ask the question, well, what is the heart? And then we'll move on to what does a man or a person look like after God's own heart? What is a heart? Number one, the heart is a person's emotions, desires, passions, and loves. Why do you get out of bed in the morning would be a question. There's, there's something that's driving you to, to get out of bed in the morning. Why, why do you do what you do? Um, there's something that's, that's inside of you that's driving you to do what you do. Why do you eat what you eat? <laughs> I'm just asking the question. Why do I eat what I eat? Because there's something inside of us that's driving us to eat what we eat, to be who we are. What is it that's driving us? This, this thing that's driving us is connected to our emotions, our desires, our passions, and our loves. That's like the monster that is inside of us that is going somewhere. It's traveling a distance somewhere, and it is the thing that's pushing us and driving us. Let's look at each of those. Emotions. What do you want with emotions? You want happiness. Every human being is starving for happiness. And as a result of the starving for happiness, you're going to go somewhere to find it. It's pushing you. It's, it's, it's driving you. It's sending you. It's making you. Our emotions are starving for joy. Our emotions are starving for rest. Our emotions are starving for peace. Our emotions are starving for stability. You know, why do you go to work? The reason why you go to work is because it brings an income home. And when you have an income home, you're going to get the stability. You're going to get the family. You're going to get the food. Why? Because your emotions are pushing you out the door. Your emotions are what is driving you, is sending you. Because there's a want that's inside of us. I want, I want, I want, I want. And that want is pushing us. Desires. What do you want? You want what is good? You want what is satisfying? I don't know if you had that feeling on Thursday. But I had that feeling on Thursday when I looked at the Thanksgiving dinner. I said, oh, I want what is good. And I want what is satisfying. So what did I do? I stuffed my face with it. I mean, that's how it works. I mean, you stuffed your face with it. Why? Because you want it. Well, what do you want on Friday? That was not satisfying. I want a diet. (laughs) And, And all of a sudden, you changed your mind. You changed your mind from Thursday to Friday because it wasn't satisfying. It hurt. It stretched things out. I didn't sleep as good as I should have slept. So the next morning, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Why? Because your desires are now pushing you towards a different direction. Until the birthday cake shows up. And the birthday cake shows up, then your desires start to push you the other direction. Because then you eat the whole cake, and then the next morning, your desires are pushing. I mean, the holiday seasons are horrible. And the reason why is because we're being pushed by something. We're being driven by something. We're being pushed by passions. Everybody wants purpose. You want meaning. You want you want accomplishments. You want position. I mean, every one of us has this inside of us. Therefore, you're going to do something to get it. I want meaning. So, what are you going to do? You're going to go after it, something to give you meaning. You're going to go after something to give you purpose. That's that's the heart. 
that is pushed. And love. Everybody wants to be valued. Everybody wants to be nurtured. Everybody wants to be wanted. Everybody wants to be liked. So you're going to behave accordingly. You're going to be pushed to the point of behaving accordingly because something's driving you. What is it that's driving you? You want to be loved. So you take all these and you compile them together. Emotions, desires, your passions and loves. Your greatest wants is your monster inside of you that makes you, moves you, sends you. And whatever it is, you're going to go after it because these things are being tapped. These things are being tapped. So what if your, 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 your emotions and your passions and your loves is... It's like anchored into greed. <laughs> You'll do whatever you can to get it. What if it's anchored into hate? And then all through the aspects of your thoughts and your behaviors and your mind will, will do whatever you can to get it. What if it's under hurt, hurt and unforgiveness and, and the past and the rough past and, and all of a sudden we're being ruled by these things? What if it is your emotions, your passions, your loves, is, it's like anchored into God? What if it's like, God, you are the one that controls them, owns them, and, 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 and possesses them. Then what it's going to do, it's going to take your life. It's going, to, it's going to take you a direction. It's going to move you a direction. I want to look through scriptures, and I'm going to go very quickly. We'll try to go quickly anyway as we go through these scriptures. But when you look at the heart, I don't want to say heart. I want to say emotions, passions, desires, and loves. To give us an understanding what these verses are saying. Psalms 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your emotions, desires, passions, and loves on your bed and be silent. Do not be angry or be angry, but do not sin. So he says, watch out. And the reason why you need to watch out is because you're going to mess up. Fix it. How do you fix it? Ponder on your emotions that's driving you. Ponder on your desires. Ponder on your passions. Try to find out what's going inside that's making you angry. And you know, oftentimes we don't even know what it is. Oftentimes it's, it's even clear in the past. Say your heart was hurt in the past. You're raised by an alcoholic father. Abused by an alcoholic mother. Sexually abused when you're young. An absent parent's. All of a sudden, something's taken place in the past and it has made an impact on your heart. And then when you walk into a marriage, you get close to somebody, all of a sudden, things start coming up. And as things start coming up, where is that coming from? Where is that passion, the emotions, the desires? Why are you moving towards this anger? It might not be your husband. It might not even be your wife. They might set you off from what took place 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Because the heart is a delicate object. Your emotions, your passions, your loves. And this passage says, be angry, do not sin. Try to understand what's going on in the heart. Psalms 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when, uh, than they have when their grain and wine abound. What does that verse say? Grain and wine don't do it. For me, you actually did it for me. Grain and wine did not put this joy in my heart. You actually put it in my heart rather than it. Psalms 10. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. 
You will strengthen their emotions, their desires, their passions, and their loves. You will incline your ear. I am afflicted. How do I get through it? According to that passage, God will strengthen my emotions and desires, passions, the things that's driving me, the things that's moving me, the things that's sending me. Psalms 86, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my emotions, my desires, my passions, and loves to do what? To fear your name. Take me, the thing that's driving me, the things that's in the center of me, and do what with it? To fear your name. For where your treasure is, there your emotions, desires, passions, and loves will also be treasures is something on the outside. It would be money, it would be a house, it would be a relationship. Whatever that item is, whatever that treasure is that you treasure on your heart, your emotions, your desires, your yourself will actually move towards it. It will consume your thoughts, it will consume your tongue, it will consume your behavior because your heart is what? It's moving towards it according to that passage. John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of the emotions, desires, and passions, and loves will flow rivers of living water. Believe in me. And as a result of believing me, I will change your emotions, is what that passage says. By, by believing me, there'll be enough power. This is what we're going to talk about next week. There'll be enough power to change your emotions. By believing me, there's going to be enough power to change your desires. There'll be enough power to change your loves. Because we all love something. But by believing me, you won't believe in the power that is behind it. We'll change those pieces according to that passage. There, 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose our heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This verse is saying, I am dying. That's what it says. It says, though our outer self is being wasted away, no matter what age you are. You know, you know I turned 50 and uh, some people said in the foyer, it's like, oh, what I'd give to be 50. <laughs> uh, some people say, oh, my goodness, you're halfway dead, <laughs> you know, when you're 50. I mean, everybody's got a reaction. But what it really comes down to is we're all a dying people. And as we're dying people, some people are closer than others. But according to this verse, that if you are a dying person, no matter what age you are, you are alive. If your emotions, desires, passions and hearts are anchored to something that exists. I mean, think about that. That's power. That's the power of the gospel. The disciples were what? They were martyred. Their situation was not good. Their heads were removed. They hung on crosses. And all the way through persecution, I mean, they would go through horrific suffering before they were even martyred. But as they're going through all this suffering... Their emotions, their passions, their desires and loves were still alive. And Rome believed that that was an issue because they couldn't kill them. I kill them, but they're still alive. Even though their bodies die, all of a sudden a lot of more people said, well, I want their emotions, passions, and desires. What do they have that I don't have? So what did they do? They found Jesus. More people found Jesus. And then all of a sudden the church grows even more. Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their emotions, desires, passions, and loves. I'll write it on them. I'll write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is that? That's what you call salvation. That's what you call salvation. What is salvation? Jesus Christ left heaven. He was God. He's God. Left heaven. He came to earth. Came for the earth for the purpose of dying for you. Came to earth for the purpose of dying for your sin. And the only way he could be able to die for your sin is if he had to live a perfect life. That's exactly what he did. He lived a perfect life. After he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross. Why? For the sacrifice of your sin. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And as a result of that act, if we believe in him, we are saved. How are we saved? We're saved by going to heaven on his perfect life. Not ours. We're saved by going to heaven on his perfect life. Well, how do you do that? Just say, God, I need you. God, I need you. Please save me and wash me from my sins. And Ezekiel says, I will give you, as a result of salvation, emotions, desires, passions, and love. And I will take your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart that starts to feel. Salvation is an event that happens. It's the event when you first turn to God and say, God, I give up. I'm not the king. You are. I'm not the Lord. You are. I'm a sinner. And I need you. Therefore, I believe. And you look through scripture and it says, I will give you a new heart. But he also says, I will fill you with the spirit. This is an event that changes the very core of you. One event changes not only your eternity, but the direction of the way you think, the direction of the way you move, the direction of the way. How does that do that? I mean, is that possible? Quite a few years ago, my kids were uh, young. I think Maya was like three years old and Maddie was five. We were coming home from Spokane. And uh, it was extremely snowy outside and, and very icy. And, and so we, I drove from Spokane to Tri-Cities. And it took about six hours. I mean, that's how slow it was going. And, uh, and then I was exhausted. So I said, Joe, do you just want to drive a little bit while we're in the desert here? And then what we'll do is when I get into the gorge, more into the gorge, I'll, I'll drive again. So she got a hold of the wheel and she started driving. And she, she hit the rumbles on the side. Boom, 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 boom. I don't know what you call those things. Somebody might know, but uh, whatever they are. But as she hit them, she just moved away and then all of a sudden she started to slide and she counter-corrected and counter-corrected moved back and forth and then all of a sudden we hit the the um the grass and then the whole rig flipped over flipped all the way over then landed on its feet my kids are still in their car seat so dad looks back ah you guys all right and and we were all all right in fact it just you know kind of even slowed us down in a sense that police officer came and got us in the car and we drove found a rental car and we just kept on going home but my wife wasn't all right. What I mean by that is that she would never drive on the ice again. <laughs> she would never drive on the snow again. She says, I, I know, you, I'm not driving, no way. She goes, the reason why I'm not driving is because when I drive on the snow, on the ice, I feel me moving. <laughs> so who gets to drive? Me. What does she get to do? Sit there. And say, I feel like we're moving. <laughs> How do you think our conversations go in the car? We're not moving. We're fine, honey. But that's what she thinks. She, it's built inside of her. 
it, it changed her. That event just went straight past her mind and into her heart. And, and, and it changed her. That's what salvation is. You were once dead, but now you're, you're alive. You were once lost, but now you're found. You once were without a father, but now you have a father. And who is it? It's the king of kings and lord of lords. And the day I die is the day I actually see him face to face. I think what that would do to somebody. If they believed it. <laughs> I think that would do to somebody. If they believed it. Psalms forty four twenty one. For he knows the secrets of the heart. What do you mean he knows the secrets of the heart? That means you don't know the secrets of the heart. Secrets is something that is not revealed. To who? Not revealed to me. I don't even understand my heart. I don't even understand why I do what I do. And there's there's corners of me that's like, why am I doing it? Well, God says, I know all the secrets of your emotions, your desires, your passions, and your loves, and your past, and all the stuff that's been connected with you inside of it. I know exactly where you're going, and you don't even know where you're going. God knows. Proverbs 21, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord does what? Ways of heart. I mean, how, how many of us feel perfect? How many feel like our decisions are the decisions that should be made? <laughs> I, mean, I do all the time. I have a decision, and it's the right one. I'm sorry, honey. Yours is the wrong one. But she says, I have a decision, and it's the right one. No, it's, uh, which one is the right decision? Well, as we're making all these decisions, we can feel good about ourselves, but the God is weighing the motive that's behind the decisions, which is the heart. Luke 16, you have the Pharisees. Who were they? The most religious people in the temple? I mean, they had the possession of the temple. The ark, I mean, the possession of, of, of the temple where everybody came to worship. And this is Jesus' reaction to them. He said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your drive, mission, emotions, your passions, and your loves. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You might look really, really holy but you're not because I'm not looking at what you look at I'm actually looking at what's driving you and what was driving them it was money it was greed it was power it was position and we know that because they killed Jesus because he threatened it he threatened it therefore they killed him for the purpose of taking him out but that's what was pushing them that was what was driving them Mark 12, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your emotions, desires, your passions, and loves. If you can get that, everything's going to work out. Because what happens is he, you love him from on the inside. My emotions embraced him. Passions have embraced him. My desires are him. My love is him. This is the first commandment. That I give with a promise. Love with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and with all your strength. Number two, a person's emotions, desires, passions, and loves is what drives a person's behavior. Do you ask, you know, isn't Christianity all about all about behavior? Well, God's not looking at that. He's looking at why you do what you do and what you do it for. You give time to God, you'll ask the question, why are you giving time to me? Are you giving time to me for the purpose of getting a greater position? Are you giving time for me for the purpose of something else besides me? 
When we work, why are we working? When we serve, why are we we serving? I mean, just to, to, to look at these pieces, you serve because you're in love with God. You move because you're in love with God. You, 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 you work, you give, you sacrifice. Why? Because God takes the center of your emotions, your passions, and your loves. And when we do that, we're doing it with a, a pure heart. Matthew 15, 18 says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Look at that passage. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. What comes out of the mouth doesn't come from the mouth. What comes out of the mouth doesn't come from the brain. What comes out of the mouth comes from your emotions, your desires, your passion, the thing that's sending you, the thing that's moving you. And then he, he goes on. This is what defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Where does that come from? That's behaviors. It's behavior. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. That's all behaviors. You know, if you, if you study psychology, people will say, your surroundings is what makes your behavior. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the nature that you were born in, that's where those behaviors come from. That's where those behaviors come from. That's why salvation is so important, because you need a new heart. <laughs> you have to have a new heart. It's the only way that we'll be able to stay away from uh, things, the temptations that come our way. Luther said he feared his own heart more than the Pope. Why did he fear his own heart more than the Pope? The Pope was trying to kill him. Well, he knew that his heart would ruin him if he just let it go out of control. He knew that his heart would ruin him because it keeps coming up. His lusts, his desires, his passions. I mean, we all understand what we're talking about. Keep on coming up. And as we're walking through this life, what is... What are we going to take? Whatever we take, we want more, we want more, we want more, we want more, we want more. As we want more and want more, what's going to do? It's going to destroy us. It's going to ruin us. It's going to take us out. Psalms 119. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your Bible in my heart. You know, the Bible actually exposes your heart. When you read the Bible, you don't see the Bible. You don't only see God. You actually see yourself on the page. Have you ever read the Bible and been confronted? <laughs> Have you ever read the Bible and started crying? Have you ever read the Bible and, and be moved? It's like, I, I can't believe that he loves me. Because what it does is exposes the heart, according to that page passage. 1 Corinthians 4, 4-5 through 5 says this, It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. What does it say? It is the Lord that judges me. Nobody else should be judging me. Because nobody else knows how to do it. It's the Lord that judges you. Nobody else should be judging you because nobody knows how to do it. But when God judges, he's not judging the behavior that you did. He's judging the motives of the behavior, the motives of your passions, your loves, your emotions, and, 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 and desires. He's looking further in to see why you're doing what you're doing. Now, when you look at that, it, it just crushes us. And the reason why it crushes us is because we can't do anything right. 
If he judges the heart, we can't do anything right. But when you ask a kid if they want to receive Jesus, what do they say? Do you want to accept Jesus in your what? Your heart, your emotions, your desires, your passions, love? In the time that you accept Jesus in your, your heart, God's not going to look at you for being you. He's going to look at you for what he, Christ has done for you. That's what conversion is, is. And he's going to ask the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Well, if you do, then you don't have to worry about much else. The only other thing you have to do is love others. Think about that. Love God and love others is a connection to the heart. Verse Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What did Saul's heart say? Saul loved himself. Saul served himself. Saul sacrificed for himself. Saul gave to himself. Saul was his God. What is David's heart going to say? Saul loved God. And everything he did, he, he served God out of that love. He was connected to God. God is looking. Are you connected with me? Are you not connected with me? Is the largest question you can ask in life. Because that's what separates us. Are we connected or are we not connected? And the only way you can be connected is go to the cross. Say, God, please forgive me. I'm not my God. You are. So looking at this, what does a, a person look like? What does a man look like after his own heart? Number three, this is what a person looks like. We'll go through rather quickly. You love what God loves. When we talk about this heart, you know, is my, is my heart, right? Well, this is a great way to, to get started. Love what God loves. What does he love? He loves the truth in a world where there is no truth. <laughs> a world where truth is just whatever you want. He loves the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the way it is. And you look into the scripture and you do not, what you see is you see history. And you see God moving into history through Jesus Christ. Oh, he loves the truth. And when we look at the truth, when we read the truth, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love it as well. What else does he love? He loves the word. He loves holiness. He loves his great name. He loves creation. We're going to open up the Psalms as we go through David as well. And we're going to see that through the Psalms, God is impressed with his creation. He loves it. Loves everybody. We're supposed to love it too. I mean, day one, what did he say? Let it be, and it was good. Day two, let it be, and it was good. He said good every time he said, let it be. Every time he spoke something to being, he says, it's good. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to, we're supposed to love it. Look at the mountains and worship him as a result of it. Look at the hills and be excited about it because he's excited about it. He loves you. He loves grace. I mean, people go, there's no way in the world I can get to heaven. God wouldn't accept anybody but me. Well, the reason why you can get into heaven, because it's the same way I can get into heaven. God loves grace. What does that mean? That means you're a loser. <laughs> you're somebody that can't get to heaven. But I'm going to save you as a result, not of what you've done, but what I've done for you. He loves that. So what does he do? He feasts on us. He feasts on the prostitute that walks in and says, I need a savior. What do you get? He got all excited about it. 
He says, you are saved as a result of that. Why? Because he loves grace. Love what God loves. He loves mercy. Loves the salvation of, of souls. Loves the gospel being pushed forward. Number four, you hate what God hates. What does God hate? Does he hate anything? Oh, yeah, he hates stuff. His greatest enemy is sin. That's why he died for it. Why is Jesus God's greatest enemy sin? Is because sin is designed to destroy you. That's it. I mean, go through the Ten Commandments. And you go through the Ten Commandments. Do not kill. If, if, if you kill, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be destroyed. What do you mean you're going to be destroyed? We well, live in America. There's law. You're not coming to church next week. I mean, you're, 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 you're locked up. You're behind chains. You ruined yourself. Do not lie. Why does he say not lie? Because he doesn't want you to ruin yourself. He doesn't want you to destroy your reputation. He doesn't want you to destroy his name. He wants to move you up in the world, not down in the world. So he says, do not lie. Honor your father and mother. There's strength and there's purpose, a commandment with a, a promise. These commandments are not provide, uh, supposed, to, supposed to put chains on you. They're supposed to give you life. Every single word, we even talked about this last week, every single word of the Bible is for the Christian. For the purpose of giving you life. He hates sin. So when he says don't do something, it's because it's because he loves you. We're supposed to hate it too. We're supposed to hate the things that destroy us. Sexual abuse, domestic violence, corruption. He hates it. Are we supposed to hate it? Yeah, we're supposed to hate it. We're supposed to hate it with a passion. Five, you hurt over things that God hurts over. I remember raising my kids and I always wanted to stretch the limit with them and take them to the most intense spot I possibly could. So I got the biggest swings I could possibly swing as high as I could possibly go. And uh, because I just loved the intensity of it. And when they were young, I'd put them on a blanket. And when you run around the house, you would like to run as fast as you can without them flying off the blanket into the wall. You know, I didn't want to do that. But I wanted to have a fun time. So you got to go fast. But sometimes you didn't know where that cap was on the fun time or not. And so sure enough, I get high speed with that blanket. And I once crossed the cap and my daughter flew right into the wall. And uh, when she flew to the wall, I came and picked her up and she was crying. She had blood all over her face. Oh my goodness, my heart was just like, oh. I mean, it was just like this, this feeling. Like, no, I hurt. When she hurt, I can't stand watching my kids. She can't stand watching my wife hurt. I can't stand watching you hurt. I can't stand reading the prayer letter to see the, the hurt and the pain that is taking place. God hurts over those things as well. He cried over Jerusalem and the lost souls. When we're going through a life and we're dying, does God feel that? No, he hurts when we hurt. He hates death. We're sick of death. He says the last enemy is death. Uh, yeah, I do funerals. I've been hired to do funerals. You know, why do, why do I do funerals? Well, I would not do a single more funeral if I didn't have a God. <laughs> the only reason I do funerals is because I have the answer. To be able to do funerals. The reason why I wouldn't do them is because I'm tired of death. But I keep doing them and say, there is life through Christ. That's the only reason I keep doing them. But it's tired of Tired of losing loved ones. It's not like you, you lose a loved one and next year you're okay. It's like you lose a loved one and there's like a hole in your life. A piece of somebody is in your life. When you hurt, God is hurting. Hurting people. Don't mess with children. You can read the Bible. Don't mess with children. Milestone throw around your neck. And when children hurt, God is hurting. It's taking place. Six, you desire what God desires. Desires humility. Desires integrity. 
And God desires commitment. The whole Bible's about commitment. I'm going to make a commitment to my people who are lost. It's what I desire. It's what I want. Therefore, you desire it. Therefore, you want. It desires faithfulness. God is faithfulness to us. We're supposed to desire that too. With him and also with people that are around. Number seven, you're passionate about what God is passionate about. Passionate about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> tell you, he's extremely passionate about it. He wants you to be passionate about it. Not to just accept it and go to heaven when you die, but to embrace it and let it live inside of you. Taking hold of your emotions, your desires, your passions, your loves, and sending you a direction for the purpose of his mission to the lost world that is out there. You love what God loves. You hate what God hates. You hurt over the things that God over. You desire what God desires. You're passionate about what God is passionate about. That's what a person looks like as a person after God's own heart. Acts 13, this is Paul speaking. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart, a man after my own emotions, passions, desires, and loves. This is what I've been looking for. Somebody is driven by that so that my will can be accomplished through them. God's not looking at you. Do this and good. Do that good. Behave here. Behave there. God's looking. Where's your heart at? Where's your heart at? If you embrace God, hold on to him for the rest of your life. Feed yourself on God. Feed yourself on the word. If you've not embraced God, go to God. Say, God, I'm not my king. I'm not my Lord. I want you. And do you know what's going to come alive? The meaning of life, your purpose, your mission. You as an individual then find your place in God's kingdom. And the day you find your place in God's kingdom is the day you find your place in this world. God, thank you so much for paying the price. There's no way, God, we could work our way up to heaven. What a joke. Jesus, you came, you lived a perfect life, and you died so we can look at you, faith, God, face to face. Thank you so much for that gift. I just pray, God, it would be a gift that we all think about. Not one that just goes to our mind, but penetrates our heart deep inside our emotions, our passions, our desires, and loves. Let it own us, God. Let it rule us. Life is short. After it's short, it's done. Life is rich. I just pray we be a people who love you in this life. In Christ's name, amen.